The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion, my guest today, Michael York, OBE, celebrated actor and writer who talks to the personal journey of a career spanning some 45 years. Welcome to In Discussion. It is an enormous and great pleasure to join Michael York in conversation. Celebrated actor and writer, Michael has developed an extraordinary body of work during the course of his 45-year career. In this, a profound success on stage and in film and television, his film debut in Franco Zeffirelli's The Taming of the Shrew saw him work alongside the great actors Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Since then, he has accumulated over 60 screen credits, including in recent years appearances in the Austin Power films, and most recently and eagerly awaited The Mill and the Cross, working with Charlotte Rampling and Reuter Hauer. His books illustrate a deep understanding into the human condition and knowledge of the business of filmmaking, in which he passionately works. Michael, welcome. My pleasure. Michael, could we start off uh, with the work in the early days? As I had indicated to you earlier, uh, before the program began, I'd love to talk about Franco Zeffirelli's The Taming of the Shrew. This was clearly a launch pad for you after your years uh, in Oxford. Um, what was that? Uh, what was that to do uh, to your career at that stage? How was that to launch you? Well, it was a very significant film because it was the very first one I did. I had, in fact, worked with uh, Zeffirelli before at the National Theatre in London, under the, in the glory days when uh, Laurence Olivier was its director. He came over to do a production of um, Much Ado About Nothing, which certainly was um, more than Much Ado About Nothing. It was very, uh, it was a rather controversial. It had a wonderful cast: Maggie Smith and. Bob Stevens and Derek Jacobi and Albert Finney and Lynn Redgrave. I mean, it was just... And I was very lucky to be in it. And um, uh, during the rehearsals, he, he, we happened to be sitting in the canteen having a cup of tea. And he said, Do you, have you ever made movies? And I said, no. He said, would you like to? And I said, my God, if we, we dream about this. And don't forget those... The, this was, you know, the... Uh, the late 60s, the uh, the days of the um, Nouvelle Vague, and when cinema was doing really exciting things, uh, especially in France and Italy and even in England. So, um, so a year later, I got this request to go on audition in Rome um, for his film, and I was the lucky one who who got the the role, and it was with uh, a film with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor who. Um, let us not forget, were then the gods of the cinema. Um, they, you know, bestrode the movie world like colossi. And um, 
and uh, were wonderful to me. They were producers of the film, so I owe them. I owe them a great deal. Yeah. And then I went. I was with this relationship with uh, Zeffirelli. We went on to make other things together. His uh, his uh, wonderful Romeo and Juliet. Um, you know, filmed on location with young teenagers playing um, Romeo and Juliet, and later Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we've stayed in touch ever since. You're my daughter. Always fight at the least provocation and never submit to insults or edicts. Above all, remember who you are, a D'Artagnan. Can I ask, in the years prior to that, if you look at films uh, even back to the 50s, the, the, the Lavender Hill Mob, the, 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 those wonderful, wonderful films in that era, uh, did those fil- the sort of films, that real uh, British film industry, did that have uh, implications for you? Well, yes. I mean, we were, well, you know, television wasn't huge, so we all did go to the movies. And uh, Britain had a very well-established movie industry. Um, a lot of war films, of course, made after the war. But the, you mentioned the Ealing comedies, which was uh, a, a particular, you know, a brand of humour, um, a British which seemed to um, export extremely well. And I think of you know the key players um, in these comedies, you know, you know Peter Sellers, and of course Sir Alec Guinness. Um, so it was a wonderful, uh, fertile ground for the nurturing of, of talent. We also had, you know, the carry-on films, a more, more kind of, of vulgar comedy and uh, hammer movies and so on. So things were quite active. Um, but no, I was, when I was a student at Oxford, we really lived in the movie houses. Um, there was, it was the great days of Antonioni and the early um, um, uh, Nouvelle Vague in France um, with Godard and, uh, oh, well, uh, you know, the whole, the whole gang transforming the way, you know, cinema could be made. Um, very, very exciting. What was it, uh, Michael, that took you towards movies and in some ways away from stage? Uh, clearly, uh, your love of Shakespeare uh, and, and Shakespearean work is very clear, but in later years it, it was very much the film world uh, that appealed to you. Was, was there any, any uh, reason or journey that led to that? You know, I thought it was all part of the mix. Uh, I certainly loved movies. I loved the fact that, um, um, you know, my entry in, into the movie world coincided with a time when equipment became much more portable and films started to be made, you know, on location, out of doors, much more than in the big, you know, centralized urban factories, uh, the film studios. Um, it appealed to me to be able to do something that might if it had any merit, would survive. And also because, you know, one one knew that one, one was incredibly lucky to be doing this because um, all the actors of my acquaintance, you know, was, were, you know this was uh, something that really appealed. But at the same time, I think the British tradition of, of acting was such that, you know, um, Movies was one part of it, and, but you also went off to the BBC and did a radio play, and you went off and did some theatre. It was all grist to the mill, 
And you, whereas at the, when I first came to America, there was a much more demarcation. There were movie actors and there were TV actors. And uh, there were radio actors. And it, it was like some terrible party where nobody, you know, interacted or met each other. There was not much crossover. That has changed, I think, so much for the better. But I've always, when I came to live here and work here, I brought that uh, British sensibility with me. Um, you know, I was a, I didn't want to be stuck with a label that said movie actor. I said, no, I want to go off and do some interesting other things. So I've always had a, uh, my entire life an entirely maverick career, being rather self-indulgent, doing whatever I wanted, you know, going off and, uh, you know, reciting with a symphony orchestra, wonderful, um, going off and doing lectures or whatever. So it's rather eclectic and rather, you know, hard to pin down. What is it about your dynamics, uh, not only as a human being, but also as an actor, uh, that drives you, Michael, uh, to be involved in so many different things. Um, it, it's always extraordinary to me. Uh, I was talking to Vince Pace of, of Avatar yesterday, and, yeah. and you talk about Jim Cameron, and he was explaining to me the, the agony and the pain that you go through in whether it's film production or on the stage or whatever it is. What is it for you that drives you so hard to be able to do so much, to, to have created such an amazing resume over the years? Well, I hope it's not an underlying neurosis that, you know, you have to be busy all the time. I actually love, I love the job, and it makes me happy, and I'm, you know, and I think a lot of actors are like that. They really, really enjoy what they're doing and miss it when they're not. Because, of course, as we all know, this is not something you can guarantee. You can't have a blueprint and say, well, I'll do, uh, well, I'll do two films this year and I'll do some theatre. It's much harder to plan. Um, so you're not, if you're not quite a, a pipe for fortune singer to sound what stop she pleases, as, as Hamlet noted, um, you, there, is a, you know, there is a certain element of, um, of luck and the unknown. But luck, I think luck is important. I think, um, I think um, there, there was a remark that um, Napoleon made. Um, he was talking about a general uh, and assessing this general with his other generals. He said, well, you know, is he good? And the other general said, yes, he's excellent. But Napoleon said, but, but is he lucky? <laughs> I think he hit upon, you know, a key ingredient. I can't help thinking that that was a line out of a very famous film uh, used uh, either by Gregory Peck or <laughs> David Niven or somebody like that. It probably it sounds a little too good to be true, but um, I think the... Um, I know that people have defined luck, you know, as preparation, meeting, whatever. I, I forget the exact formula. But I think you... It, you know, it... it, 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 it I think luck does, it has to play a certain chance. Why is it that some people, like me, get their chance earlier on and others have to wait, you know, a, a lifetime, a whole career before they, you know, they blossom? Um, but I think the satisfaction is not so much the approbation, but in, in doing it. And uh, probably rationalizing that, that 
you know, much of what we do is entertainment, which in itself is very good and rewarding. But just occasionally, you can be involved in an entertainment, in a project that changes the way people see the world and apprehend it. And that is very, very exciting. It doesn't happen, you know, all the time. But when it does, it's immensely satisfying. I'd I'd like to... um use that as a segue, and I don't like using that a word at all, but I, I will, um, to talk about your autobiography, Accidentally on Purpose, uh, and, and in that, Michael York, um, uh, as said by the Associate, Associated Press, and inherits the mantle of his fellow countryman, David Niven, as a premier storyteller. Uh, do you, uh, in, in going back to that conversation that we've just had do you see your life as being uh, a form of storytelling do you see it coming coming together in that sort of structure is that how you look at it in the way that you work and the way you take films on and the natural progression of your career i think it's it's less planned than than that um in fact the title that you mentioned accidentally on purpose on the one hand was a sort of catch penny title t- title that hopefully got people to stop you know the book rack a little longer uh, and maybe even pick up the book but on the other hand it was a deeply uh, serious inquest into whether all these jobs that you you know and i i like to keep busy so there are hundreds of things now over the course of you know my for want of a better word career um was it was it all happenstance, or was there, there some thread that united all these disparate projects? You know, some destiny that ran through it. And at the end of the book, I'm not sure I found out the answer, but it, the inquest was, you know, most enjoyable. As you as you moved on, Michael, um, and you no doubt saw the way that the film industry was changing. I'm, I'm sure in the 1970s it went hu- through huge changes uh, as it is today. Uh, but in those those years, uh, and, and no doubt earlier with, with the David Nivens and, and the Gregory Pecks and Alec Guinness, uh, what did you see in those actors? What, what was it that perhaps was so extraordinary that, that maybe you don't see today? Uh, is, is that something that provides you with nostalgia and a, and a, and a reference, a key reference in the work that you, you, you have now? Well... You know, um, I was very lucky because there was a studio system that created manufactured stars. Um, they based it on talent, of course, and charisma. But, you know, the, there was a, 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 definitely a sort of industry that turned out stars. And uh, I was very fortunate when I first started. I was actually put under contract by some big studios. And then the system changed, and it was, um, uh, and then there was a sort of emphasis on youth, where young people were running the film studios and writing the movies, and then it changed again. And it changes constantly, and change is good. As you mentioned, we're in a, uh, an enormous change now over the uh, delivery systems of movies and the whole digital electronic revolution of, um, you know, computers and cell phones and so on, and um, 3D and this, this super technology that we now have. Um, 
but um, I often have a, <laughs> a bad dream that actors will be required on the film for one day or maybe one hour where their, their image and their voice print will be digitalized and then they'll be told to go home and a computer will do it all for them. But I don't think we've come to that because I've yet to see a digital image that's been able to cap capture what goes on in an actor's eyes. And particularly, I think, um, you know, film is, by and large, photograph thought. It's not particularly dialogue-heavy, but, um, you know, it's what an actor can convey physically and emotionally, and especially, you know, through the eyes. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, I, I just narrated a documentary about Mary Pickford, and in it was this... Um, um, the, the revelation about the first close-up in movies uh, of and Mary. Mary was such a pioneer. She was, of course, responsible. And the, the great D.W. Griffiths decided one day he wanted to bring the camera in closer. And he shot her in close-up. And, of course, the executives in the studio were horrified. They said, My, what, uh, what is this? We paid all this money for this photograph this kid the full body and you're giving us just a bit of her uh but you know this these techniques techniques have improved and changed and uh, they'll, they'll continue to do so um it's part of a great tradition and i'm so happy that in when i've seen you know one system and look forward to the future and uh, look forward to the changes that no doubt lie ahead how would would actors like um, John Gielgud, uh, Cary Grant, I mean Jacoby, uh, <laughs> would they have any different approach to filmmaking now with the technology that they would have done then? Uh, interesting question. I think they probably would have. Um, you know, they had to adapt as well. Um, but you mentioned, you know, those three names. They're three people who had you know, great success in films and in the theater, too. Um, and maybe that was a, a key difference. Um, you find uh, movie actors here who will go to the theater because, you know, they, they feel it's important for their growth. I think it was Charlton Heston said, you must go back to the theater to get your passport stamped. <laughs> Otherwise, they take it away. Yes. Um, and in a sense, he's right, because if you spend your whole time in a highly technical um, way, um, you lose, I think, that physical ability of being able to hold the stage, to command a voice. And, um, and uh, you know, you find now increasingly in theaters they're having to put microphones in because locked, uh, actors have lost that ability to speak dynamically, uh, which was all part of the training. And um, so, you know, there are, there are things to regret, but also things, I think, to embrace and, uh, as I said, to look forward to. I was interested in your, uh, your remark about uh, the eyes of an actor. Um, they're, they're terribly important, aren't they? And, and, and that was always something that impressed me so much about Michael Caine. Um, it always, he, he always seemed to be able to... Um, yeah, Michael has a very famous um, acting instruction. 
said, you know, the secret of acting on film is never, never blink. <laughs> so, um, but I think it's more than that. It's, you know, what the, the Elizabethans said, the eyes are the windows of the soul. And I think that uh, there's a great truth in that. And you don't, uh, I think it was John Wayne who said, you know, speak low, speak slow, and don't say too much. <laughs> you know, knowing that the, uh, the actors, uh, you know, so much is interpolated by the audience. Um, John, in fact, it was John Gielgud who, who said to me, you know, I, I had this proved to me once. I was doing Chimes at Midnight for the great Orson Welles, you know, his, his, his wonderful Shakespearean film. He was playing the king. And he completed his role. He was waiting to go back to, to be taken to the airport to fly home. And um, Orson Welles came and said, uh, oh, John, I just need you for just a quick pickup. And he took him to this room, sat him in front of a camera. He said, right, John, look front, look left, look right, look up, and look down. Thank you, that's all I need. <laughs> and uh, when um, Gilgut, Gilgut saw the film, he said he saw this, you know, the expression when he looked down, he was looking at the dead on the battlefield, and he said he got fan letters saying that look that you gave when you saw the you know the slaughtered dead it was so moving, so there's a lot of you know interpolation that goes on does your style change over the years it, it, it must go through so many different stages michael i mean what 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 is it that uh, you are you you must be a storyteller as much as you are an actor uh what is it that you use as a human being um that has to not only satisfy yourself uh, a, a, as an artist, but also be uh, very uh, attuned to assuring that the audience gets it, understands you, understands what you are trying to achieve. Well, you know, you have to um, you have to acknowledge that in movies, the actor is basically supplying raw material for someone else to cut into shape. Um, and the editor is the great, in my estimation, the great hero of the movie because he uh, cuts out the things that are, you know, not totally accomplished and embellishes the bits that are. And so um, it's, a, it's a, you know, you have to realize that whereas on the stage you're basically controlling your own performance, you're editing it, you're, you know, you're... you're whatever you're in charge in movies you're not um and it's very much uh, you know a team effort you can't come along you have to come in with ideas and say you know and make suggestions and so on but it depends so much on other circumstances very much on the director's concept um and your other actors uh the tone of the movie the the, the location so many things dictate this and uh, but I've always found that there's a very interesting point when you're playing a role, whereas where suddenly the character takes over that you've started establishing and starts dictating how it wants to be played. Um, it's a very <laughs> it sounds very strange, but this does happen. And uh, a lot of what one does is instinctive. You may have made all the studies in the world and all the notes and so on and 
you're in agreement. But suddenly, you know, a bit of text doesn't sound right uh, because the character has evolved. And um, I think to answer your question is, you know, you... Most actors expect to go on doing this until they can't, because there's no cut-off point. You don't have a retirement age. That's absurd, because as you mature, so your range changes, so most people go on and, and, and drop in harness, um, which is wonderful that you have. You can keep adding pearls to your crown at a, you know, at a later, later, late age. I remember, again, to, to refer to the great Sir John Gilgood, who became a friend because we worked together on several things. Uh, one of the joys of making movies that you're in, you know, you've developed companionship with people over months. Um, I, we called him up on his 96th birthday and said, John, how have you spent the day? And uh, expecting him to say he'd been in his beautiful garden and relaxing. And he said, almost reproachfully, uh, reproaching me, he said, well, I've been filming all day, Samuel Beckett. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's that's wonderful, you know, um, to have, you know, that enthusiasm that still keeps you wanting to jump out of the bed in the morning and, uh, you know, to to, um, keep stretching the envelope. What is that level of immersion, if I can use that phrase as an actor, where you become the character? Um, ah, yeah. where, where, where does that yeah. happen? Where does that occur? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I read about actors who can't stop and have to, you know, <clears throat> have to go home and the family have to put up with them keeping in character, um, which I find must be a very tedious thing to do. I've more or less been able to take the character off with the makeup and the clothes. Although, you know, if you're going in a film over several weeks or months, you know, it's always there. You can't, you know, totally put it aside. Um, And my theory, it sounds a bit Pollyannaish and and Boy Scoutish, but if I give the project 100% of my time, attention, ability, whatever, application, then I can walk away from it at the end, whether the thing is deemed a success or not. Because, you know, one's, one's done one's best. Um, and if for some reason you're not fully up to it when you're filming, it's terrible to be on a movie set when the, the machinery is not functioning, um, when you're not, you know, when you're not um, creating, I suppose. Uh, it's awful. So uh, I try to, you know, dedicate that time to, to the work in hand. And I believe that you spoke to that uh, in Dispatches from Armageddon, um, talking about the, the process of m- making movies. Uh, to, to what extent do you get involved beyond uh, acting? How do you get involved in the production itself? Is that something that, that you enjoy getting involved in, or are you reluctant, or it, does it depend upon the, the genre, the production? Well, some movies I've been involved in as a you know co-producer, so uh, you know the 
your inco- your input is welcomed. Um, you mentioned uh, you know dispatches from Armageddon, which was about making the two Omega Code films, where <laughs> I played the biggest baddie of them all, the Antichrist. And you can imagine coming home as the Antichrist and, uh, you know, uh, unleashing that on one's family. So, no, I think it's it's lovely to be involved. I'm not, uh, you know, a producer-producer where you get turned on by you know, the whole thing of setting things up and raising money and all these other things that don't interest me as much as the creative work itself, you know, the, the, the writing and the character and, the, you know, all that aspect. So, um, but I would, you know, I obviously would like to do more because I think it's, it's, it's really, you know, you have to create your own opportunities. So one, one all the time is looking for a story or a book that you think would make a great movie and, uh, you know, trying to push it into production. And, um, uh, and, you know, we all know that making a film is, very difficult experience and especially in, in now with you know uh, the money is tight and funding is you know um, people having to seek other sources you know um, but they do get made and there are some great ones we're now into the what they call the awards season uh, there are so many awards actually that they almost cancel each other out but <laughs> so I've been seeing um uh, I'm very happy that I'm home at this time to be able to see this this huge selection of um, American, British, and international movies, and uh, you know, and to sigh with relief, there's there's great work out there. You, you must look back on this. I, I'm, I'm just uh, reading once again, as I have been for the last five days, d- down the uh, the list of films. You must look back sometimes amazed at the uh um at the uh, at the broadness of it you know you you know looking back at those original uh films and then looking at films like logan's run and then <laughs> forsyth saga and and uh, huge huge uh, areas that you that have crossover here yes deliberately because i didn't want you know i never wanted to get stuck as i say in a box with a particular label um I always like to ring the changes to, um, you know, and it's rather nice to um, to range uh, over a great deal of, um, of you know, of, of different characters and different themes. Um, so I, again, it sounds neurotic that one wants to keep changing, but it's I find that you know very very interesting. I've loved, you know, adding other strings to the bow, um, performing in foreign languages. Um, I've uh, performed in French several times. And more recently, um, a film which is also about to come out, a Russian film that was made in Russian, because I just thought this would be really interesting to do, um, which comes out uh, in April of next year, called The Justice of Wolves. This was quite a feat uh, for you logistically, Michael, I'm sure. Well, yes, I don't speak r- Russian uh, too well. I mean, I do now. So it meant a lot of, um, you know, learning one's dialogue phonetically and being able to um, to uh, get up to speed on that. 
Um, but again, I, I do love a challenge. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm, 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 of course, I'm waiting with bated breath, crossed fingers the, with the release of this film. But uh, I think it should be pretty interesting. You're uh, the, the, the eagerly awaited uh, The Mill and the Cross. Uh, can you give me some, some background to that film? Yes, it's a, it's a film. It's a, a Polish film. Um, and it's, it's about a Bruegel painting, uh, The Way to the Cross, a famous Bruegel p- painting based on a, on a book by Michael Gibbons called The Mill and the Cross, where he made a whole story out of all the myriad characters in this painting. And, um, and, and um, I play one of these characters and what they had to do they had to digitally remove the characters from um the the painting and then so that we live actors could inhabit it um uh, it's it's emotional and it's of course it's taking forever to put together um but um, the reports i get are very very positive charlotte rampling is in it and rutger hauer um, it was just wonderful again to take this 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 step forward into the uh, the new world of uh, you know digital cinema, but to have you know to, to have both possibilities to have actors performing, but also within this this extraordinary setting that Bruegel had created. And and within that environment, uh, and this uh, I. Is why I raise this because I'd like to talk a- about technology a bit here. Um, your acting process m- must change in a film like that if if it is indeed more long-winded uh, or, or it it has layers of of extra complication. Uh, how does that affect you uh, and your, the characteristics of your of your acting and your storytelling? Well. I'm, and perhaps to a certain extent, because most of it is filmed against a, a blue screen, green screen. Um, but the you know the the, the acting itself, the uh, you know the I was called acting. Uh, it's sort of a uncommon imagination allied to common sense. Um, you're still you know adapting to the camera. Uh, you have to know what lens is on, for example, so how big or small the performance can afford to be. All those rules, basic rules that become second nature over the years are still there, except that amazing things are going on, you know, <laughs> in the, uh, uh, with the, the, the green screen, blue screen process. I remember I ran into Christopher Lee, the great Christopher Lee, with whom we ha- I, I fought many a duel on the Three and the Four Musketeers, and he's recently been in these huge successes. You know the uh, um, uh, the um, oh, Star Wars, Star, Star Trek. I forget, I forget which. Anyway, yes, yes. and particularly the Tolkien saga, Peter Jackson's Peter Jackson's films. And he said, you know, he said um, it was touch touch boring. He said, I was uh, put against the green screen. It was all done for me. He said, well, was you and I, when we had those fights, that was for real. <laughs> Nothing fake there. So, um, um, 
in a, in a way that there, there are changes taking place. Um, I was in a film called Logan's Run, which was in the, the early days of special effects. So they weren't, they were pretty good, but they didn't overwhelm the narrative. Uh, you know, the emphasis was still very much on the actors. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the effects were wonderful, but they didn't, as I said, they didn't blot out the, the basic storytelling. Um, and I keep hearing now rumors of a remake of Logan's Run with multi-million dollar um, budgets. Um, so you know immediately that there's going to be, they're going to be spectacular. You know, the special effects are going to be um, astonishingly special, uh, which makes me wonder, I just hope that the, um, the story itself won't get, you know, trampled under by, by effects. When you are involved in films uh, such as the one that, that, that uh, is coming out next year uh, with, with Charlotte, um, what is it uh, you see in actors that have evolved uh, in recent years? Uh, what do you see in their style? I, I'm interested, do you sometimes look around you, not in any judgmental sort of way, but do you look around you and think, well, maybe Charlton Heston, you know, raised a, a valid point here, um, one also, you know, has to uh, return to the stage now and again to reala really realize what acting is all about. Huh. Is, that, is that something that, that, that returns to your mind uh, when you're on film sets? I don't think it's, it's, it's an absolute requirement for film acting. I think it helps. I think it certainly gives you, uh, um, um, you know, it adds to the technique. And certainly if you're doing Shakespeare, I think it's, it certainly helps if you... Um, can uh, you know um, speaker uh, um, iambic pentameters, um, but it's not necessary. And in fact, there's nothing worse than stagey acting on screen. Um, it has to be adapted, uh, and it's usually something which is, as we've discussed before, which is much sm smaller and uh, you know uh, maybe a little more spectacular. Um, No, I don't. Uh, I, I think it's entirely up to you. And I find that actors who have been brought up in the theatre, they sort of miss it. Um, what is it that they miss? Um, I think the sense of being in control, as we mentioned. Maybe it's also the approbation, or otherwise, that you get from an audience. It's instant. Whereas in a film, you know, you may have to wait for it, or it never comes, or... You know, so it, there's there's something about the process that appeals. Uh, also, the sense that you're in a an ancient tradition that's been going on, you know, for centuries. I remember one particular thing that happened to me. I was on Broadway in a play called Bent, a very tough play set in the Holocaust and uh, a, a wonderful humanistic story, but very very dark and black um, although at its core is this great love story uh, between two men and um, one night at the door there was this young girl she said oh I, I just want to say I came tonight to the performance with my mother and uh, I said yeah she said yes my mother was in the holocaust and some of the terrible things depicted on stage happened to her and I went of course cold 
I thought, what's she going to say next? How dare you, well-fed actors, indulge on her, you know, uh, on, uh, and uh, exploit her, you know, what she went through. But she didn't. Instead, she said, you know, I'd just like to thank you, because my mother has never been able to speak about this, this experience. But seeing the play tonight acted like a key. It sort of unlocks the door. She's, she's talking about it for the first time. And I thought, well, my goodness, you know, this goes right back to the early days when it was part of, you know, sacred ritual of the theater. Um, and I thought, well, if I never do anything else, um, I shall always cherish this, this one night in the theater. And... Um, I think the theater, and I'm including films too, the drama, has the power not just to embellish people's lives, but to, to change them. Uh, going back to that whole Shakespearean thing in Hamlet, where Shakespeare himself explores the whole nature of the drama, and what it's for, why it's there, uh, in the famous line of holding the mirror up to nature. And I think that's very much there. We do have a sort of mirror we can look into, understand what makes the human tick. What is it about ourselves, about our neighbors, about foreigners? That uh, Where are we alike? Where do we differ? Uh, and I think that's another reason why we, we go to the theater and cinema, because we... We have a chance to see an alternative reality and compare it to our own. Is that perhaps, Michael, um, a great plus, a great advantage, a great benefit that you have had uh, in your career that you, you started uh, on the stage? It, it seems that there is a two-way road here between the actor and the audience that uh, is of great benefit to the actor in the way that they d develop their uh, develop their acting ability develop their delivery that must be uh, f far more intricate and uh, fast paced on the stage than it is in film uh, there, you know, therefore, you, if you look at actors today in in uh, on television or whatever it is, and they don't have, they have not had that benefit. Um, do it, it's perhaps that they don't understand that remarkable, profound effect that they can have on the audiences, and as much as walking into yeah. a theater and watching a great film can have an impact and indeed change people's lives. Well, you know, I always say to there are young actors now, and especially in television, where they're, you know, they'll get cast in a role which sort of fits their personality. And it's wonderful for them, and they become, you know, an instant star and whatever. But and I've worked with many of them. And I said, listen, that's great. You've got a wonderful, you've got your foot in the door, you've got, um, you know, recognition, but now you've got to build on it. You've got to go and challenge yourself. You've got to go off, go off to the theater and do something uh, and uh, just keep pushing the envelope because if, if you stick within, you know, this, this tiny little localized framework, it's, it's not going to get you very far. And remember, you've stuck your foot in the door but, you know, this is supposed to be, uh, you know, a long career. And uh, you'll need to keep stretching and um, embellishing. 
so uh, um, I think it's great that you know these uh, young Hollywood or young television stars get this start very early. Uh, but I was—I I remember I was often in London where young Hollywood actors come and really put their lives on the line and do a West End play. And I think, good for you. You're going to, this is going to be invaluable. You're going to exercise muscles you never realized you had. And you're going to keep, you know, you're just going to add to your bag of tricks uh, because a lot of this is, you know, technique and, um, which gets you by. In a way, you know, this is, uh, this is a point. It's acting is left brain, right brain. You know, um, one half of the brain, I forget which one, is entirely technical. You're, you know, you're, you're handling cues, you're coming into a light, you're saying lines, you're, you know, you're um, in films, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're moving from one light to the other or whatever. Entirely technical. You're monitoring your performance in technical terms. And the other half of the brain is saying, well, hey, just let go of all that and just let the gods speak, you know, and just... And just um, so it's a curious bipolar thing. And in illustrating that, of course, in your own case, you can look at your your classical work, going from Romeo Juliet, and then uh, going to the, uh, the going to Cabaret, uh, Lisa Minnelli, and 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 then of course going to Austin Powers, and, and, and what an, what an amazing range! What an amazing range you have there. This is my mother, Mrs. Exposition. How do you do? <laughs> What have you done? That's not your mother, it's a man, baby! Austin! Yeah, hold on, hold on, what's it? No, 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 my mother! Oh, oh, mother. Mother, are you all right? You have a lot of explaining to do. That must take courage to a certain extent. Well, I think one's, you know, very lucky. Um, um, again, to hark to, you know, uh, uh, John Gilgood, I don't keep meaning to trade on John, but he keeps keeps coming to mind. Um, you know, he said, you know, no one ever stopped me in the street uh, or acknowledged what I did until I did Arthur. Do you remember that film yes. with Dudley Moore? Yes. <laughs> he was such a... And it, it's, it's funny, you never know what's going to work out. That's the other thing. Uh, you know, this, the so-called Hollywood rule that nobody knows anything. Not quite true, of course, but, but but, you know, nobody knows how things are going to turn out because it's such a chemical um, reaction. You put all the elements together and uh, you don't know if there's going to be a good, healthy explosion or it's just going to fizzle. Um, and it happens every time. Nothing is guaranteed. Um, so um, it's... Um, they talk about the movie gods who are very capricious, who give their favor to the one and withdraw it from another. Uh, but I think that's, if there was, you know, a blueprint for success, and many of the, you know, the big studios, the conglomerates that now own the film studios, um, you know, traded on this for a long time. They thought, well, if you have a success once, you just repeat it in a sort of um, a sequel. Um, but it doesn't always work. Um, and the reasons for the su success are often entirely capricious and indefinable. Um, 
they say, well, get get star actors. But this last act, uh, this last year has shown that uh, a lot of movies with the big star A-list actors have tanked. So there, there's a lot of scratching of heads and you know revising of plans. And you'll get a film like Slumdog Millionaire with um, more or less totally unknowns, which goes through the roof. But then again, if they try and repeat the Slumdog formula, it'll often blow up in their face. Um, for example, an example in, in uh, the West End now, you know, there um, a lot of the uh, shows now are being driven by stars. It's a sort of guarantee in these tough times that you can get people into the theaters attracted by, you know, um, big wattage stars. Looking back over your career, uh, who are the who are the most uh, profound actors that you remember that you uh, have great friendships with that influence you so much? Well, certainly, I was in awe of um, of um, Laurence Olivier, um, and I think I was turned on to the movies by his movie of Henry V, which I saw as a young a young young man, boy, I think, and almost fell out of my seat with excitement because it was Shakespeare, but it was living Shakespeare. It was breathing. It was moving. It was so powerful and, and exciting. And, um, and later on, uh, as I said earlier, I had the great good fortune to be in his company at the National Theatre. And... Um, admired him inordinately because of what he had achieved. Not just the Shakespeare movies, but he'd been in, you know, he, he'd conquered Hollywood. He'd also been the great, um, you know, stage actor of his time. He, did, he produced films, he directed them. It was a full career. He'd also, you know, pioneered, started the National Theatre Company, got it on, got it on its feet. So, in a way, he was a, you know, he was a sort of god. And um, certainly, I relished that um, relationship, as I did with his, his great contemporary. Um, again, I'm going to mention John Gilgut again, because, you know, they were, they were two sides of the same classical coin. You know, Gilgut, a much more um, cerebral beautiful voice, um, Olivia, this sort of dangerous panther. Um, and the Zeffirelli connection, I, of course, cherish to this day. And um, also the chance of working with the, some of the great directors, Billy Wilder, for example, um, just to have... Uh, being in a movie directed by the great Billy Wilder was um, a consummation devoutly to be wished. Uh, and so it goes on. There are so many, you know, um, there's so many people that um, I admire. And uh, and the, the, the way I see it, I know this is maybe, this is slightly, um, uh, well, it's maybe wishful thinking, and it may be delusional, but I feel that, you know, one's still in one's prime, 
and there's hopefully still a long way to go. That yes, the doors have closed on certain uh, movie roles, all those jeune premier roles, the young heroes. And uh, now, you know, I embrace the fact that one is called to play grandfathers and, and mature characters. Um, so I, um, as I said, it's it's nice to look back to be retrospective, but it's it's very very nice to look forward to what lies ahead. And you know, the 2010 approaches and. There's a film that I've been wanting to do. We've been trying to get it set up for four years. Um, but, you know, every time it's fallen by the wayside, the script has been embellished a little further and it gets better and better. Uh, that may happen or it may not. Um, that I'm doing something which I really love. Uh, over, over, you know, the last decade or so, I've... I've again in purely self-indulgent. I've uh, done something which I love, which is narrating, performing with great orchestras. Two weeks ago, I was in Chicago um, narrating with the great Chicago Symphony, um, and in February, I'll be working with the great Sir Neville Mariner on a William Walton piece. And um, I'm looking forward to that enormously with the uh, Nashville and the Detroit symphonies. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure today uh, talking with you. Um, I'd be li I'd like to be uh, uh, the first to congratulate you on the uh, Mary Pickford Award, which I believe you are the recipient of. Is it the 22nd of this month? Yes, it's this weekend. Um, Yes, it's very, very, I'm really pleased with this, not only because of the Mary Pickford connection, but uh, it's uh, the international media. And as I've always tried to have an international career, it's um, very gratifying to be, you know, recognized by an international body. Well, Michael York, uh, film actor, OBE, uh, we have had uh, a great privilege today in talking to you. I thank you so much for being well, with us. Well, I hope us. I haven't been too, um, you know, untouched go on banging on about oneself but um i suppose there's no point in being you know like john wayne and just <laughs> saying very little <laughs> your your uh your conversation has been uh, uh extraordinary and i thank you for that it was my pleasure thank you very much indeed thank you and to our listeners today i do hope that you have enjoyed our discussion with Michael York uh, as much as I have. If you would like to listen to this and any other program in the series, uh, go to our official website, davidgibbons.org. I think this deserves a kiss, don't you? <laughs> I'm sorry, I got a little carried away there. Perfectly all right. Here's your gum back. I cannot help you because you have turned your backs on me! On me! Do you give me your word that you will not burn the village of my parents? Yes. And cut. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. 
This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.